0: Back in 1995, there was a gentleman by the name of John Hockenberry. He was actually a paraplegic, but he was also um, uh, a person who was part of MSNBC. He was one of their reporters that would talk about different things. In 1995, he came out with a book called Moving Violations, and it was a very provocative and engaging because he was very down-to-earth and frank about the culture and society and being that he was a paraplegic, a lot of his stories were based on the obstacles people feel and experience when it comes to fitting into our culture. Uh, he made a, a statement in here that I wanted to take the time to read, and he says this. "Lost causes are big business in the United States. There is more effort put into curing spinal cord injuries or discussing the legal issues involved in suicide for the se- severely disabled than in integrating disabled folks into our society at large. Pray to be normal, no matter how impossible it seems, is the sentimental message that we're getting. The alternative is too horrible for people to contemplate. What he was speaking about is that people will spend enormous amounts of time on trying to fix people so that they can be like them and paying very little attention on how to value people for where they're at and, and include them in our life and in our culture. Now, I don't suspect that he was thinking about the church, but one of the places that sometimes is the hardest place for people to fit into is the church. The reason for that is because you have all kinds of dysfunction also in the church. Uh, It is a place where we ought to be learning how to overcome those and learning to look at life through the eyes of Christ, but it's still a struggle. The whole idea of including people and what equality looks like is a huge battle in terms of just understanding from our own vantage point what that looks like. And obviously the solution to that is not to look at it from our vantage point, but to look at it from God's vantage point. But that's a journey. And this morning we're going to step further into the scriptures to look at a church that had struggles about the issue of equality in lots of different ways. In fact, we're gonna take a snapshot of the Corinthian church because it's part of our discussion uh, as we move through this whole issue of roles and responsibilities and equality, uh, but it's a, it's a challenge, and so this morning, I am not doing, as it were, a verse-by-verse exegesis. I'm giving you a, an overview of the church at Corinth and how they met, And I want to give you seven pictures or words that give you pictures of some of the struggles they had related to the issue of equality. To do that, I want to begin, and if you want to try to follow it all, although I'm not going to spend any particular time in any one text, we're in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. The reason why that is important is because it gives us a picture of the church as it gathers, Uh, There are some things that they do that we don't do. There are elements of life and what it means to be a community that's part of ours, but not to the same degree that it's theirs. We're going to note those as we go through. But I want to give you a bit of an overview of the things that they had as challenges in terms of this issue of equality. We're going to actually take two weeks. This week, I'm giving you an overview. Next week we're coming back to probably the most complicated text in the entire book of Corinthians and that's 1 Corinthians 11, understanding the whole issue of uh, head coverings and authority and headship and what that means and how to walk through that a little bit. But if you would to understand this text, there's some things that if you are not a super diligent student or have gone to Bible college, you may not notice some of the things we're gonna talk about this morning. And the reason for that is that I want to talk about the context of the church in Corinth. And to do that, there's a couple of references that I want you at least notice. In Hebrew, or 1 Corinthians 11, 1-16, as I mentioned, is this whole issue of headship and authority and culture, and what does that look like? As Paul addresses some issues that they wrote to him about, he's trying to uh, take aim at some of those things and help them see through it. But when he gets to 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17, he begins this discussion about the church. He discuss about what it means to be the church and the nature of the church and the obstacles that they have to face. Uh, literally, there are some statements here that are fairly significant. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 and 18, he starts this discussion about when you gather, as the church it literally is this when you come together in ecclesia which is our word for church it's it's when you gather and this is one of my favorite passages because the church is not like the old testament buildings in the tabernacle which we often t- pull into new testament times but he's going to say listen you are the church He's already talked about this in 1 Corinthians 3, is that our bodies, our our presence is the dwelling place for the spirit of the living God. We are the temple, the tabernacle, and as we come together, we form this spiritual reality called the church of Christ. And so he begins talking about this in uh, chapter 11, verse 17, and just so that you can get a framework of it, he's gonna talk about a lot of things in between, which I'll outline in a minute. But when he gets to chapter 14, which seems a long way away from here, verse 26, he uses exactly the same wording when he says, okay, so now when you come together, here's some final instructions about what this is to look like. So quite literally, chapters 11 all the way through 14 is talking about when they gather together as the church and what they did and what were their priorities in terms of gathering. Now some of it will look a little bit different, but we want to uh, look at the front end and talk about some big picture stuff as we look at this idea of equality. Let me describe some of the commitments that this early church had when they came together to form the church. In 1119-34, uh, he's going to say, when you come together, and it's interesting how he starts this, he says, you're not coming together for the better and he's gonna talk about it, but the very first thing that he talks about is the Lord's Supper. And it seems pretty evident, at least for this church, that whenever they came together, the Lord's Supper was very much an ongoing, regular part of their gathering. In fact, it seems pretty evident that they didn't think they would gather as a church unless it also included the Lord's Supper. Now, we practice it, for instance, once a month. Some churches will do it every quarter. For them, The person and the work of Jesus was what defined them as a church. And so the Lord's Supper was most likely a regular part of every gathering that they had. Uh, We would have a hard time tolerating that. We've already tried that in the past at times. Uh, And no matter how much you do it, people go, well, it starts losing its value because we get, in a sense, bored with stuff like this if we did it all the time. Uh, So it's hard for us to do that. And even the way they met was somewhat different than what we did. But he talks about the Lord's Supper, and he's going to explain how they should meet and some of the problems they were having. And then he goes to chapter 12, which is the discussion of spiritual gifts and the nature of the body of Christ. And so it becomes very important when they gathered that people found ways to use their gifts that God had given to them. God had placed everybody in the body in, in the place and the position that he felt was important and then they had to learn how to become a valuable part of it. And so in verses 12 through 31 you have all these roles and responsibilities that we'll talk about as we move through this morning. We're obviously not gonna look at this in any relevant detail this morning but we're, I want to get you a snapshot of what was true about their gatherings. In chapter 13, of course, most people know that because it's the wedding passage. Uh, where you talk about love of course back then it was had more to do with the gathered church than it did weddings uh, but we have this whole pericope as it were on Love and how critical it is and there's some things that are vital that we'll see there in terms of love and so when they gathered together as a church, it was to meet for a meal and have the Lord's Supper. It was a place where they'd use their gifts and and one of the great priorities that Paul was encouraging them is that you have to be demonstrating and communicating love to one another and he's pretty strong in his vocal about how he does that. He's basically gonna say as we'll see in a few minutes, if you don't love the people around you, you're nothing. You can have all the gifts in the world, and you can have all the talent you want, you can have all the abilities and everything else, but if you're not loving people, you're gonna benefit nothing, you become nothing in the scheme of what God calls us to be and do. Then he goes on, and in chapter 14, he talks about two specific gifts. One is the gift of tongues, the other one's the gift, uh, not the gift, but prophecy. And he's going to uh, deal with probably a problem that cropped up within the Corinthians church because the gift of tongues was pretty spectacular and miraculous, and it's likely the reason he has to address it is that there were certain divisions amongst people that those who spoke in tongues started seeing themselves as a bit elitist. We speak in tongues, you guys don't. We have this special spiritual connection to God that you don't have, and Paul's kind of like, listen, when you gather together as a church, let me just tell you, if you want to start that, I, can speak, I speak tongues more than any of you, but in the church, if people don't understand what's going on, it's completely worthless. And so he's going to set up some strong priorities about what's important. And then he, uh, as he moves through chapter 14, he'll not only talk about the purpose of gifts as edifying the church, but the priority of gifts is the exaltation of God. And, and so when we begin to look at this, I want to give you seven pictures of how in many ways the very things that ought to be uniting them were the very things that became a context for division, became a context for inequality and treating people differently. And it, it's, it's somewhat staggering, but you have to remember, the whole idea of ecclesia is that God has called people out of the world through faith in Christ and the personal work of Jesus, and now they're learning how to live life together as a new community, but they've all brought their own baggage with them. They've all brought their values that they learned in their households and the value they learned in the culture and from the false gods that they used to worship. And so it would be nice to go, you're different and you're not doing this anymore, but you know, they're people. Uh, And I hate to say it, they're people like you and me who you don't check your baggage at the door, you tend to bring it in and sometimes inflict it on others. Not even suggesting we should be checking it at the door. The whole nature of the church is that we learn to be transformed by the indwelling presence of the Spirit, not try to hide our stuff somewhere so that people don't see it. And so as we move through this, let me just give you seven pictures of where inequality and disunity was touching the nerves of this particular church. Now, the first one is dishonoring others. We get this actually before he even talks about the whole idea of coming together. It's in the first uh, 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11. This is the passage we're gonna come back to next week and think a little bit more precisely through it because it's one of those passages that gets very much caught up into the whole issue of roles of men and women. But it deals with headship and and, uh, he talks a little bit about the, the man is the head of a woman or the wife and that that whole discussion sort of breeds all kinds of pejorative thoughts in people's minds about how bad that language is, and even is these days. But then he talks about the fact that Christ is the head of man, and God is the head of Christ. And so it begins this where God puts his divine fingerprints on things that rise above just simply what's going on in the culture. And so we're going to sort of scoop through that and look at it But one of the things that we can see that's clear in the text is that it talks about, regardless of all the clutter around it, is that when a man goes to pray and prophesize, he's supposed to behave in a way that doesn't dishonor his head, which we'll explain later, but the idea is, one, he doesn't dishonor himself, and he doesn't dishonor Christ. But then women were supposed to wear coverings, head coverings, so that they don't dishonor their head. And so you get into the questions of, What does head coverings mean and why don't we do it anymore and all this kind of stuff. But it does say both of them have the freedom to be praying and prophesying in the context of the gathering of the church. Now if you know the culture of that time, women didn't have a really high status. They didn't have a a high status socially, legally, or in the religious circles. They were at times treated less than valuable people. And so I believe the things that Paul talks about here adds tremendous value to the fact that women are said, listen, if you want to participate, you have all the same freedom that men do when it comes to using your gifts and participating in the community of faith. I mean, that's part of the why we don't have any problem with the gals, with Shannon leading worship and singing and participating and reading the scriptures and doing things. Why? Because the scriptures give that freedom for women to be in the same vein of worship and participating as the men do. And so that's one of those things, if you take somebody who has an extremely traditional uh, approach to role of men and women, there's lots of churches, and I've seen them and been in them and experienced them, so I know it's true that there's passages like women aren't supposed to talk at all. There's to be silent. So men moment they walk in the door. They're not supposed to say anything. So I know you're kind of curious how I think about that when it comes to those passages. Not this week, not next week, we'll get there, don't worry. I know you'll show up for that service even if you don't show up for the others, but anyway. But, but this becomes, but if you have a very literal sense of what the scriptures say, or you have a very traditional theological framework, this is where the rob is, and so we have to sort of figure out How much does the culture influence what is saying there? What's circumstantial? What is it that, that we believe that as limited as the human authors are, what was the spirit of God trying to communicate in those particular situations? And so we're going to step in where angels never tread and try to figure that part out as we go through here. But the first problem they had was that there was individuals who out of their sense of way they participate in worship had a tendency to dishonor the people around them. And he even uses words like, why why are you acting disgracefully in the way you participate and worship? And so one of the problems they had in terms of dealing with equality is that they were acting in ways, as far as Paul was concerned in this particular context, that were disgraceful and dishonoring to the people around them or to their relationship with Christ. And, And so there's a sense of inequality, there's a sense of struggle to know what that looks like as we move through it. The second picture that I want to give you is that he says that there are divisions amongst you. It's kind of an interesting statement because when Paul says this, he says, for in the first place, and this is 1 Corinthians eleven 18, I'm going to be reading from New American Standard, so just have to sort of bear with me if it sounds different. In the first place, when you come together as the church, I hear there are divisions that exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may become evident to everyone. One of the great parables is the parable of the wheat and the tares, where there's enemies who come in and sow tares within the wheat, and the workers ask the the master, he says, should we go and pull all this stuff out? And he goes, no, if you do that, you're going to destroy some of the good stuff. He says, leave it, I'll look after it. And we need to realize that as much as uh, that reflects the church today, that there are people in the church that are unlikely, are at times there are some people that aren't believers, that, that they don't care about it. It's Maybe they, it's just circumstantial because they grew up in a Christian home and they were forced to come to church and they're there, but there are times when evil people sneak in because they're after something. And, and we have to deal with the reality that you know, I'd love to be able to say every single person in this room is just pristine, pure, perfect motives, godly in every sense of the word, but I'd spoil that if you didn't. Because we're not. But I do have confidence that I have this genuine, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, not based on my abilities, works, or accomplishment, but because I realized that I was facing a Christless eternity separated forever from, Christ, uh, from God, apart from surrendering to him through faith in Christ and admitting that I was a sinner. I have no dibs on going to a better place when I die, but it's only through the saving work of Christ and his shed blood that I can be right with him. And that becomes kind of the, the, the clarion call of what the church is. And of all the other things that we may do, the heartbeat of this is that God has called us all out of the world with all of our clutter and all of our garbage and all of our circumstances and all of our bad experiences and all of our brokenness, and he he redeems us and starts healing us as we learn how to walk with God and walk with one another. But at the heart of this, we have to realize that Paul's saying, listen, you've got to realize there are times there's divisions because then the people who are genuine believers at some point will become evident. And there are things that went on there is, uh, it's, it's ironic to me that he starts talking about the Lord's Supper and that's the very place where the divisions are. I don't know if you can find much more of an irony than there. The person and the work of Jesus is the centerpiece of our salvation and yet right in the midst of that service, of, of celebrating that together, he acknowledges there's people that probably don't belong there because they don't know Jesus. Now, it may sound ironic to you that we call ourselves the church, and at times there's conflict and divisions, but that's the reality of dealing with broken people. And so we, we need to learn what it means to take our brokenness before God and know what Christ died for, and then we have a heart that's open how to learn how to be healed by Him and how to encourage one another. So he talks about these divisions. But then he, in thir- the third element here he talks about is despising one another. It's still in the context of the Lord's Supper, but he literally says at different places that they're doing some things that are rather shocking, to be honest. It shows how much clutter comes in with broken people. Uh, he says there's times you're not discerning the body properly, which is either a reference to... Jesus and his sacrifice, and you're basically sort of spitting in the sacrifice of Christ by acting poorly. The other part of it is that you could be having animosity between yourself, divisions amongst between yourself and other people in the body, and still taking the cup and the bread and pretending that I love Jesus when I've got issues with other people. He says, either way, you want to interpret that, my contention would be, That still shows a certain sense of despising others and despising Christ because I'm not willing to deal with my own sin. I give this facade that things are fine when I take the the cup and the bread, but I've got animosity or whatever between me and someone else. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11 he says, listen, don't just take like this is some kind of religious exercise. God takes us seriously. We're, We're really declaring allegiance to the fact that Christ died for us and so to to dishonor that in any way is really he says is to despise people and it's participating in an unworthy manner and he says God takes it so seriously that we give this sort of declaration of taking communion that some of them were sick and ill and weak and some of them had even died because that's how seriously God takes it and so there's this sense of that, that there's inequality when people start acting in a way that's unworthy because the, what they project to other people isn't the reality of the struggle that's going on in their heart. It's not about whether I have problems and whether I'm struggling with things, but when it comes to, dis, to just treating other people like they don't matter, that's a problem. The, the statement in chapter 11, verse 21 and 22 is this. For in eating, Paul says, each one goes ahead with their own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. At the Lord's Supper. You're kidding me, right? It's amazing what people will do in spite of their sinful, sinful behavior in the face of the, of the person the work of Jesus. What he says, I, I'm sure he's got a Greek word that's way more powerful than what, but Anyway. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? Not a chance. That was my version of what he said, okay? You get that? And so, and so he's concerned that these people, uh, and, and there may be reasons for it. It's very possible that there's some homeowners, some masters who've come to Christ but they have servants and slaves. At home, they wouldn't eat with them. They would eat separate. they'd eat on their own because they're servants and slaves. And, but when they come to the church, it would be very difficult for them to switch gears. Now I, I'm, I'm treating my own servants differently because they've trusted Christ like I have. So we're kinda got equal standing here but they're so used to like, they're servants. I don't hang out with them. And all of a sudden now they're thrust into this community of faith where the servants have just as much value as the masters did. He's kind of like, look, think about it a minute. You're, you're in a new community, supposed to be living a different way. What do you mean you're, just, you're, just, you're ignoring these people and you're eating without them? Don't bring your bad habits from home and inflict them on everybody else. By the way, that's an important element of life. Some people think that the way they behave at home is normal and it's extremely dysfunctional and they think when they come to church that should be normal too. No, it's not. But some people have no concept of what proper behavior is. Sometimes it's not their fault, it's just the very dysfunctional bad environment that they grew up in. And sometimes they're the victims of that, sometimes they're the perpetrators, so when they come, they try to act like, whatever, a bully at church too, and it's not gonna work. And so Paul says, listen, you despise others when you think you're king of the hill and everyone should confirm to the way you wanna behave. It doesn't work that way. And so there's often, there's a struggle of equality because there's some people that just had a, a, a much more of a God complex than others, and that I don't have to cater to people that are not like me. I don't have to cater to my servant. I, I don't have to adjust my behavior to accommodate people who I don't like anyway. And so it became a problem, where people were bringing in the behaviors that they have at home, and thinking they can get away with it in terms of, I've seen churches operate this way. I've seen churches where Families have uh, literally been part of the church for decades and they are a powerhouse to help grow the church and they're great servants and pour lots of energy and resources but the danger is that they get this idea of entitlement that I have more say than other people and they start trying to control all the pieces on the table. I, I would, because we're live streaming, I'm not gonna tell you this, but I've heard some pretty shocking things from people who, who think that, They own the church because they've been there longer than others. It's like, how in the world do you despise people this much? The other thing when you jump into chapter 12 and he starts talking about spiritual gifts in the body is that he starts talking about dismissing one another. Now, who had ever thought that spiritual gifts would ever become an issue of inequality in the church? That sounds ludicrous. I thought spiritual gifts were supposed to build up and to edify, but Paul's addressing some things here. And, and in chapter 12, he says some pretty strange things. All Every person is baptized into one body. That's the work of the Spirit of God when we put faith in him to insert us into this spiritual family, however he does it. We are one body, but many members. And God's the one that places us in the body in the place where he wants us to be to contribute in the way that he wants us to contribute. But the danger for some of them is that they were comparing themselves to people around them who had really spectacular gifts. Speaking in tongues was one of them. But he's going to address some issues where people were feeling not equal to others because of a spiritual gift. So when you get around to this, um, he says in chapter 12, 15 through 17, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to this body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And yet churches are filled with individuals who don't feel like they belong because they don't have a role that somebody else has. And they feel like nobody cares about them and and they don't belong to the body because they measure their contribution to the body by measuring against other people who everybody knows. They're the popular ones, they're the public ones, they're the ones that really make, everyone talks about them, they don't talk about me. And there's some people who don't belong because their whole way of measuring their value is based on, frankly, a human way of looking at things. I've heard this conversation my whole ministry. Well, I don't think I can do anything that'll make any difference. You know, my story isn't as wild as that person, so obviously my personal story on how I came to Jesus doesn't mean anything because it doesn't have all the drama and the clutter and the amazing story that that person has. And so we start measuring our sense of value not based on how God has placed us in the body and saying, listen, if you're gonna be a foot, be the best foot ever. This body isn't going anywhere unless it has feet. It may not be popular, you may stink sometimes, but that has to be there or you're not going anywhere. But so many people have this insecurity that because I'm not like so and so, then I'm worth nothing. And sometimes we're our own worst enemy when it comes to equality because we keep measuring the wrong things in the wrong way and coming up with the wrong answers. And this church is no different. But we have to remember when we're feeling like we don't belong and things are not equal, that sometimes it's our own fault because of our own brokenness. We're projecting our own insecurity and our own poor self-worth on how we think everybody views us. Churches are filled with people who are simply spectators because I know that I won't do anything that will make a difference here. And while they often posture that as a position of humility, it's kind of spitting in the sacrifice of Christ and saying, I don't trust you, God, to put me in this body to do anything meaningful because my measurements and my estimation of things is that I don't count. And so there's all kinds of inequality in the church because people project their own brokenness and start comparing themselves to others rather than just trusting that God wants... To to use them, and they're just as valuable in God's eyes. And so we end up dismissing other people. I mean, he also flips it over to the other side. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. You ever run into people that seem to have great gifts, but they have a God complex, thinking that everybody else is beneath them because they don't do what I do? I mean, unfortunately, there's been way too many churches that have pastors that think they're demagogues. And they become dictators and start legislating stuff out like, I'm the king around here and you have to do what I say. And there's a huge difference between leadership and being a turkey. I knew that would get a smile somewhere. But it doesn't have to just be with pastors. It can be with anybody. That we start measuring other people's spirituality because they don't operate according to the giftedness that I have or because They're not doing the things that I think they should do. And so there's inequality when we dismiss others. The fifth one I call delinquency. Delinquency technically means a tendency to be negligent and uncaring. And when he steps into chapter 13, which is all about the love chapter, he says one of the greatest ways that you can treat each other as non-equals is when you can't love one another. It, 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 it's, he moves from the idea of spiritual gifts to say, and his language is pretty strong here. I don't care what gift you have, I don't care what kind of resume you have, I don't care what talent you have, I don't care what you think you can accomplish, I don't care how many rewards you've had or how many diplomas or degrees, if you don't love people, you're nothing. And the, and the problem in lots of, Churches and it's kind of a catch twenty two because we're getting over our own clutter and our own brokenness and garbage, but sometimes that becomes an excuse to never embrace the resources of the power of the Spirit of God to say, look at one, you need to know you're deeply loved by God. You're a child of God and you're as special to Him as the guy who's building the multi million dollar ministry. Don't compare yourself to them because I haven't called you to do that. Know where you fit. Understand how God's put you in the body. Because you're just as valuable as the person up front. And he even says, when I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I start maturing and growing up, I put away childish things. And, and, And he puts it right in the middle of the love chapter. And I don't care how much you know and how much theology you think you have and how many verses you've memorized and how many degrees you have behind your name, but if you don't have love, it's almost to the point here where you're saying you're kind of worthless to God if you can't love people. You can impress people off their socks off if you want, but if you don't love people, you're kind of almost worthless to God because God's kind of in the people thing. And so I call it delinquency. And we always have to be reminding ourselves that sometimes inequality is created in the church because we start comparing the wrong kind of resumes. We lose sight of what God says, this is what's truly valuable. As individuals who are totally helpless and hopeless and headed for a Christless eternity that I rescued through the blood of my son, And I've taken them and I've placed them in your midst as a community. Now you need to love them like you love your family. That's what God calls us to do. And then the last one I call is delusional. I had to make them all literate, so I had to find the right word. So delusional, but literally once he gets through this idea of the spiritual gifts and how we can start getting a God complex that I'm more important to other people because of certain gifts. He literally says that you can be delusional as a community and create inequality because you have the wrong priorities in terms of what it means to gather when you worship. He's talking about tongues and prophecy again, and I love this phrase... I'm just going to take the time to read it. I wasn't planning on it, but I love the the rhythm of what Paul gets into. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It's a quote of the Old Testament when God brought in a foreign nation to judge his own people because they just stopped listening to him. So then he says, So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and an ungifted person or an unbeliever enters, so the gathering of the church can have people who are seeking answers to life. They're they're trying to discover the meaning and purpose of their own life, and they go, well, I'll give this a shot (laughs) and see if there's anything worth here. He says, uh, and an ungifted or unbelieving person enters, will they not say that you are mad? That's literally the translation. That's why I call it delusional. And of course, they were fighting over what, what made a really spiritual service, right? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it the kind of songs we sing? I mean, that'll never happen. You never get division or strife over that kind of stuff, right? But, but at the heart of this, he's saying, if you're doing stuff that doesn't make sense to unbelievers, it may be spectacular, but what's the point? They're just going to think you're nuts. Yeah, but we'll leave an impression. Yeah, well, good for, you. good for you. That's great. But then he goes on and says this, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted person enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, Because there's this communal affirmation of truth, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is in this place. In my uh, Bible reading this morning, I was reading out of Exodus 39 and 40, last two chapters. If you don't know how to frame Exodus, it's a great book because there were 40 years in the wilderness, there's 40 chapters, perfect fit. Last two chapters is the conclusion of them building the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and they build, get the robes made for the priest and they get all the, the equipment made for the temple, the, the ark and the mercy seat and the candles and the showbread and the sacrificial altar on the outside, You've got all this put together and then at the end of the chapter, Uh, after they get all this put together, there's this amazing statement that I love reading. I read it like six times this morning just because it was so cool. After they had completed everything, it says, Moses finished the work, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel. See, God isn't interested in hiding from the world. He wants his glory to be radiated from his people. And just like 1 Corinthians said, if someone walks in here, what I want, I don't care if they're impressed by our music and worship, it's great, it's fabulous, all the things that we do, we have people that will care for individuals if they're complete strangers when they walk in the door. But the bottom line is, I want them to know that God rules in this place. That this is a place where the glory of God radiates from every life regardless of our brokenness because we're constantly in a mode of surrender and we don't have this God complex like I'm better than other people around here, and aren't they fortunate to have me? But it's Christ in us that was what people need. I don't care if people think it was a traditional church or a contemporary church or a creative church or a nondescript church or a non functioning church. I, that doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is that God is in this place. And a lot of that has to do with you and I waking up every morning and surrendering to Jesus, dying to self and taking up our cross and following him wherever he takes us, wherever he leads us, to whatever group of people that he wants us to touch so that we can communicate the glory of the living Christ living in us. And churches end up wasting thousands of hours trying to figure out how to control programs and ministries and everything else, and it's our responsibility to do them well. But at the heart of this, God is teaching every single one of us, from the elders and the pastor to the volunteers in the trenches, to the single person, to those who are married, to those who may be divorced and those who've been abandoned, that we are all equal in Christ. That we all have value. And that we can't live lives that have divisions in it. They're, they're going to be there. But we can't be dismissing one another, and we can't be despising one another. But every day we have to bow before a throne of grace and We have to allow him to fill this temple so that when we come together in ecclesia as the church of Christ, that we set aside our own personal convictions and our own bad behaviors and we come and learn how to be loved and cared for and healed. Not so that we can impress one another with our spiritual gifts or whatever it is, but that people that know that this is a church because Christ dwells here And it's the glory of God that matters. But it starts with you and I learning how to look at the person next to us and the person across the room and saying, I have to learn to love them as I love myself. I have to learn them as they're part of my family. I have to care for people. I have to move alongside and encourage them. It's not about my click or my particular group. It's about the glory of God and caring for people. One of the things that Yoko Ono did and asked the New York Times to do way back as a memorial when John Lennon died was to print this in the newspaper. One day we will be able to say that we have healed ourselves. And by healing ourselves, we will heal the world. Well, I don't want to sound disagreeable, but I believe the Bible tells us we haven't got a chance in eternity of healing ourselves. The only chance the world discovers healing is when we discover it through the dwelling presence of the Spirit of God and learning to abandon my behaviors and priorities and my values for the reality and the truths of the scriptures and the word of the living God so that we become this place where the world can look at it. And they really will discover what equality looks like. They'll really know what it learns for people to discover significance and value because of Christ, not their spiritual gifts. Whatever that means for you this morning, I pray that The body of Christ is a place where we are constantly, always in an ongoing process of learning how to walk with Jesus and walk with one another. It's the greatest place in the entire world because it's the only place that has hope. It's the only place where God shines his glory. It's the only place that the world will ever find healing. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we are the most fortunate people in the entire world because we get to gather with family. People are so different from us and come from different walks of life and ethnic groups and we can enjoy the grace that you're doing in their life in such a way that we are humbled by the reality of what you've done for us and we are amazed at the grace that you've extended not only to our life but others. We are all children of God. And it seems staggering to think that Paul had to write to the Corinthian church and and, and point out to them all these places where inequality was cropping up and destroying their sense of unity. I mean, when they were gathering for the Lord's Supper, there was divisions and they were doing things in disgraceful ways that despised one another and dismissed each other. It Clearly, people were afflicted by the clutter in their own life and possibly the arrogance and pride that thought that they were more special than others. But we discover in this new family of God that we're all children of God, that you love us equally. You give our life value beyond imagination and you help us to have a significant role in what it means to build up the body of Christ. And I pray, Father, that your Spirit will do something in all of us to say this is the best place that anyone in the world can ever discover so that they get a second chance on life. To discover things that they may never learn in the world, they can learn it here. Help us to be that kind of people. Help us to see how equal we are in Christ to live in a way that's authentic and genuine so that we might discover your richest blessing so that people will know that God is in this place. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.